or questions we want to talk about. Over the next month, really, of this conversation, we're going to have around this idea of, hey, did God really say? It has a lot to do with that. The questions you may have about God and the questions you have in life and what they actually mean for your life. Now, I had a lot of questions when I was in college, but I want to tell you about a story real quick of when I was faced with someone who was presenting something to me, some information about God when I was in college that made me really question, like, hang on, did God really? There's no way God actually said that. So I went to UGA, and in Georgia, there's the student centers called the Tate Center. And there are people known, if you're in Athens, at least when I was, there are people known as the Tate Preachers. And if there is someone in my life that I dislike the most, it was the Tate Preachers. So let me tell you about a time when I got in a fight with a preacher. Not physically, guys. Come on, all right? But I did get in a fight with him, and I did get very heated, and it was an interesting moment for my friends and for me and everybody else. Because in the middle of this little square outside the Tate Student Center is the busiest spot on campus. Like, think about your campus, the busiest spot on campus. It's this spot. It's right on the other side of the football stadium, right where this one street goes down, and the student center's there. It's a bus stop, and everyone is there all times of the day. And so these guys would show up with megaphones. And like the moment I see a megaphone, I'm going to break it. I'm going to break your pride and your spirit and that freaking thing. And they show up with megaphones and I'm not playing around. And they would have giant belts on with signs anchored into them that were 20 feet tall. And on these signs, these giant signs they made would say the most asinine and ridiculous things about God. And I remember one time listening to them talk And there are two specific things that one of them said. I'm waiting to go to class. And I'm sitting there just looking like, you've got to be kidding me right now. And on the sign, it says, God hates women. And I'm like, are you? What? And and you ready? And Jews. And so I'm like, hey, man. Hey, I just got to ask you, bro. um, Are you saying God hates Jesus? Because he was a Jew. And he was like, well, son, if you knew any of your Bible, and I was like, I do. And he goes, well, if you ever read it, I was like, I have it here. You want me to pull it out? And he was like, no, you don't. I said, okay. And so out of my bag, I pulled out my Bible. I was not one of those kids who was like reading the Bible on the bus every day. I randomly happened to have it. I happened to have it that day, okay? Pull out my Bible, and I'm like, where do you want to go, bro? What do you want to do right now? How are you going to tell me that God hates Jews? You want to show me where it is in here? And you're like, well, if you look at, and I'm like, no, you mean to tell me that he hates her and her and her and her and her and your mom? And he was like, well, no. I'm like, then you're an idiot, man. Like, no, there's no way that God really said that. And I was so enraged at the misinformation that was being presented to my friends and to the people I didn't even know about the God that I believe in, that I gave my life to following, this misinformation about who he is. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at how you need to start to examine in your life what kind of information you're taking in. Because ultimately what we want to do is take a look at how you can know what is reliable and what is true. Is that dumb, giant, 20-foot sign true? Spoiler alert, it's not. But how do you know? Because you're getting fed information all the time, and it's going to cause you to ask, what's reliable? 
And what's true, and in particular, what I want to do is I want us to find out what's reliable and what's true when it comes to life's most important questions. Now, when I was at Georgia, I was an English major, so for me, plagiarism is a real big thing. Uh, It was like I was terrified that I'd get some percentage back on my paper that said I plagiarized, even though I never did. So let me, at the beginning, say this entire series, and specifically uh, the influence, really, of these series comes from two different sources. So I'm going to talk a lot about what I've learned from John Mark Comer, who's a pastor out in Portland. Uh, He wrote a book called Live No Lies, and that book is so challenging and fascinating and just spot on with so many things about our culture and about Jesus. So Live No Lies, and then Joel Thomas, our lead pastor at our Buckhead Church location, Joel actually took a lot of that information and turned it into this series that he did last winter called To God Really Say?, And so we're going to be taking a lot from what Joel taught and what John uh, wrote in his book, and we're going to be trying to present it in a way that's a good conversation for college students. And so to start, what I want to do is I want to look at an ancient story as we begin this. I want to look at an ancient story that's going to give us some remarkable insight to some core questions in life. Questions like this. Questions like, who is God? Who is God? I mean, that's what the song was about we just sang. Is he good? Is he God? Is he healed? Like who, who really is God? And this matters maybe more than any other question because it's something that I fully believe, something that A.W. Tozer, this really smart theologian says. Here's what he says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So how you answer the question, who is God, is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing about you. Whenever you ask that question, you start to figure it out, it leads to other questions like, well, who who then, who am I? In relation to who is God and what comes into my mind when I think about God, who am I? And then really, what does that mean for my future? In the next few weeks, we want to evaluate these questions because these are some questions that drive all of human culture. Whether you knew it or not, these three questions are driving all of human culture and they always have. And even our current culture is living in a response to or maybe even a rebellion from these questions. And now, We've all been victims of misinformation about how we would answer those questions, like the Tate preacher with me. (laughs) So if you're a little skeptical to step into this conversation about truth and about reliability and about reality, I get it. I share your caution. My encouragement to all of us is that we would lean in and think critically about what we're going to talk about together. And so what I want to do is I want us to start here at the very beginning, I want us to look in the book of Genesis, because in Genesis, at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what we start to see is that God created the heavens and the earth, and he created everything in it, and really what it is, is it's an origin story of the world and of humanity. We see that at the beginning of Genesis, and so I'm going to use this board to kind of write down some of the stuff as we go along today, so y'all follow along, because at the very beginning in Genesis, we see the story, as many of you probably know, of Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are created. God made them in his image. And now, a lot of times for people, whenever we hear the story of Adam and Eve, there's this common objection of like, okay, but really how true is it? Like how reliable really is Genesis? How reliable really is this story? Isn't it like more of a legend or like a fairy tale? And what I would say to you is, as we talk through the story of Genesis, I believe that this is the truest story ever. And right there, a lot of you may be like, excuse me? Like, really? 
Matt, did you forget there's a talking snake in this thing? Like, this doesn't line up with science. It doesn't line up with logic. It doesn't line up with anything. There's a talking snake in it. And what I would say to you is, I know. (laughs) And so did the people in the ancient Near East when this was written. They knew that there was a snake that talked and that snakes don't talk. But as a result of questions like that, a lot of people look at Genesis and they question things about it. They question whether or not it's historically accurate. Is it a historical documentation of creation? Some people may look at it and then they start to question, is it just metaphorical? Is this just a story to tell us something else? Is it mythological? But all of that is about genre. That's about the genre of literature that Genesis is. But what makes a story valuable isn't its genre. Stories can have value in any kind of a genre. No, it's not, it's not really where the value is because the value of a story is in what it means. So as we look into the story of Genesis tonight, what it's gonna show you is what it means for both them as a creation story, but even more so what it means for us and for our lives. Because Genesis is written as a book to a very specific people. So Genesis is the first book in the Bible. I normally can't draw a stick figure well, but I have practiced this so many times, you guys. So this is a book, isn't it? Isn't that good? Isn't that like, kind of? Go with me, all right? Say it's good, thanks. Okay, this is a book. Genesis is a book written to a group of people, the Israelites, who were just rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And they were in there for a long time, and they cried out that God would save them, that God would redeem them, that God would get them out. And so this book is written, the goal of this book is not to tell people in this moment how God made creation, how God made the world. That's not what this is trying to remind them of. What this is trying to remind them of is who is behind it all. Who is behind all of creation and why is the world the way that it is? See, Genesis is designed to reintroduce a group of people to a few things. It's designed to reintroduce a group of people to their creator. At the end of the day, it's the who behind it all. Their creator and then reestablish for them because they've forgotten his ultimate authority. They've been in slavery for hundreds of years. It's very easy for them to have forgotten both their creator and his ultimate authority. And so after creating man and woman, after creating Adam and Eve, the creator provided a home for them in the Garden of Eden. And then he gave them two directives and through the Genesis story, two directives, to multiply and to rule. And so with this, he gives them a purpose and then he gives them a pleasure. He gives them a purpose and then he shows them how to have pleasure within that purpose. He gives them a reason for what they should be doing. And in this context, he gives them one rule. There's only one rule about how to go and live with purpose and pleasure. And this is, this is where we need to begin because here's the one rule, look at it. In Genesis chapter two, verse 17, he says, God says to Adam and Eve, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's the one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now we have a new character introduced into the story. And Genesis chapter three at the very beginning is the very start of us seeing this enemy to God's creation. This enemy to humanity enters into the story and it's our talking little snake. And so Genesis chapter three starts, it says, now the serpent, the snake, the enemy, was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And when he says the word crafty, other translations would call this that more subtle, more wily, more deceptive than any of the other 
animals that were created by God. And so then the serpent says to the woman, says to Eve, he said to the woman, did God really say, here's our phrase, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And here's why the enemy is crafty. It's because of what he just did. See, Eve isn't misinformed. She didn't have a tape preacher running around telling her idiotic, dumb things about God. No, she heard from God himself what she was supposed to do. But what's interesting is that the snake didn't strike at her to attack her in the way we would assume a snake would attack. No, it was subtle. It was crafty. It wasn't forceful. It was a whisper. He attacked her with an idea. And actually, it was a deceptive idea. And so as we evaluate what the enemy does, we're going to see three big ways that the enemy attacked Eve. And the very first way he did it was with an idea. And so a deceptive idea was whispered into her ear and implanted into her heart. That's not what we would necessarily think, but that's how crafty, that's how wily he is. And this is the beginning of the strategy that the enemy has against her. This is how he was attacking her. He attacked her with a thought. Did God, did God really say that you can't do that? I mean, maybe you got it wrong. Maybe you didn't hear him right. Maybe, maybe he got it wrong. Maybe he didn't really mean what he said. Maybe he said the wrong thing. But Eve knows the truth. And so Eve responds like someone who knows what's right and what's wrong. She responds to the serpent. It's like, no, 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 that's not what he said. Look how it continues. So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And right here is where we see his deceptive idea implanted into her head. It starts to shift her perspective, and it's so subtle, because watch, I never picked up on this until I started to look at it. She says, no, no, he didn't say that we can't eat any of the trees. We can eat the trees. He just said we can't eat it, and if we touch it, we'll die. You know what God never said? That you can't touch it. And so Eve now is starting to have this negative modification of what God has actually said. She's starting to have this evidence of a negative progression of the view of God's ultimate authority. What did God really say? Well, he said this, so I guess he also means that he said this. And the enemy sees the opening, be it ever so small, and he strikes again with another thought. So look what he says. He says, no, 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 you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, when you eat from that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's more deceptive ideas thrown at her head and thrown at her heart that are mostly true. Like that's what all of the best lies and the best deception is. It's a lie that's wrapped in truth because that's how it's the most effective. Most lies are most effective when they are wrapped in truth because they make it more believable. And so the serpent starts to challenge these things to Eve. He's like, no, no, you, aren't, you won't certainly die. Like, you're not gonna die right now, which was true. She didn't die right then, but she would die eventually. And no, your eyes will be opened. And she could already see, but her eyes were opened, but they were open to her shame and to her nakedness that she was not aware of before. And And then you'll be like, God, you'll get to know good and evil. Well, all that she would have known to this point was good. 
And so this is the beginning of evil being introduced in. This is the deception of the lie that he's giving. But there's something else super important in this moment that the enemy is trying to actually do to Eve. Because what he's saying is, no, no, what you're actually going to do is you won't certainly die if you eat it. No, no, no. What you're going to do is you will be like God. And now his idea is playing into something else. Because now the enemy is playing into her desire to be like God. And let me tell you, that's exactly what she should have wanted. Because Eve and humanity, we were all created in the image of God. Her design is to image God. So this makes sense. He's playing into a natural desire that she has. But it's important to note real fast that the enemy, something that you may not understand about him that you need to know, is that the enemy can't create anything. Did you know that? He can't create anything. All he can do is distort what's already there. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. And slowly what starts to happen to Eve is that her deceptive idea about, did God really say that? Is that really what he meant? Turns into a distorted desire. I want want to be like God. I want to, I want to emulate him. I'm made in his image. That's something I want to do. And so he plays into her God-given desires to know and to be known for purpose, for progress, for adventure, for intimacy, to be cherished, to be wanted. Like guys, these are the desires that we all have. We all want this. And the enemy attacks her through those desires. He distorts those desires. It's a distortion that he does. And this happens all the time. This happens in our world. Let me explain. We all want eventually to find intimacy. It's what we were created to want. We want to find intimacy in life. And so our culture is like, great, I got an awesome idea of how we can create intimacy. How you can find someone that you can be intimate with. And it's a TV show. And what they do is they get someone to come on the TV show and then they introduce 25 people at the exact same time and they say, date them all. Figure out how you can actually find one out of these 25. And when you do, when you're dating all of them at the exact same time, you're supposed to find intimacy. But the problem is intimacy is found exclusively with one person. How many of y'all watch The Bachelor? You can honestly answer that question. Guys, there's a fantasy sports league for The Bachelor, okay? Thanks, ESPN. No, The Bachelor is this idea of this false, fake, distorted desire for intimacy. And what's worse is when you fail at it, you graduate to paradise. Go do it more with all the other people that couldn't figure it out. You see, like you laugh because you understand, oh yeah, that actually probably isn't right. And what I want you to do is to watch just how this deceptive idea, it turned into a distorted desire for Eve, and then something else happened. It says, when the woman ate, and when she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, and look, all of those things are good. When she saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, that's what we talked about this last series, she took some, And she ate it. She took some of the fruit because she saw that it was good in her own eyes. Her desire for the fruit was seen to be good. And so she took some and she ate it. Her deceptive idea played into her distorted desire and it led to a destructive 
behavior. Because Eve did the thing that she was told not to do. The one rule. And this threefold strategy is the strategy that the enemy used to attack Eve. And it's exactly how he attacks you. It's ultimately not a barrage on your body or a barrage on your, on your mind. No, no, it's a barrage on your thoughts. It's a barrage, an attack on your mind. And what comes into your mind when you think about God is what's the most important thing about you. So of course, he would attack that. And what happens in this threefold strategy is there are these little moments where the deceptive ideas and the desires cross over and the desires and the behaviors cross over and the idea and the behavior cross over. And so right here, what you see is this is where temptation exists. I'm writing sideways, guys. Good job. Hopefully you can read that. This is where temptation exists. This is where we have lies that we want to believe to be true. And then over here in this little spot, this is where you have education this is where something happens, an idea that you do, and you're like, oh, now I know. This is where you learn. And then down here is where you have compulsion. You aren't even aware. You are just instinctively reacting to something that you're feeling. You're at the end of it like, what was I thinking? That wasn't wise. That wasn't smart, but you didn't know. And then in the dead center right here, if it'll write in this sweet spot. This is where the enemy loves to live. And this is where he had Eve hook, line, and sinker. This is where his goal happens. You want to know what the enemy's goal is for you? We read it in John 10, 10. It says that the enemy has come to do three things. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. And in this moment, he had Eve. He stole everything that God wanted for her. He killed everything that was happening for her, and he destroyed the goodness that God was creating for humanity. And so, spoiler alert in the story, in case you didn't know, at the end of it, they die. At the end of it, everything goes wrong, and sin enters into humanity because of a thought. And so, to make it happy again, because that's not a fun ending, I want to ask the question, so where did everything go wrong, and why? Where did everything go wrong in this story and why? Because ultimately, it went wrong at the inception of the enemy's idea. The whisper of deception into her ear and ultimately into her heart, not about what she was supposed to do, but ultimately about the questioning of God's ultimate authority. This right here is the greatest thing that the enemy can do to get you, is to get you to question God's authority. Did God really say that? And specifically God's authority around what is true. Because once we start to question his authority on what's true, we start to become vulnerable. We become vulnerable to anything that anybody says because without that foundation of truth, now we become vulnerable to leading ourselves to finding misinformation. Maybe what's on that 20-foot sign is real. Maybe he does hate every. Well, I don't know. Is this, I don't know what to believe. Like what God said, his instruction, his warning, it seemed clear, but was it true? I mean, why, why should we trust him? What if he's holding out on us? What if he doesn't love me? What if he's mad at me? What if, 
What if he's just trying to control me? What if what what he said isn't really what he meant? And what did he really mean anyways? See, this is the kind of deceptive thought that all of us do by default. How do I know that? Because I have children. And my kids, I'm gonna tell this is like an intro into how super crunchy and weird we are and granola and organic and all the things. My kids love kombucha. How many of y'all have ever had kombucha before? All right, how many of y'all like kombucha? Not a ton of hands, guys, not a ton of hands. But my six-year-old thinks it's liquid gold. Like, you can offer her coffee or kombucha. I'm sorry, coffee? She's six. Matt, she doesn't drink coffee. You can offer her chocolate or or kombucha. She'd be like, I want the kombucha. I want the pink kind. I want the blue kind. I want the green kind. I want the yellow kind. I want them all. You can give me that for Easter, and I'm going to be happy. Give me it for Christmas. Give me all times of the day. And she would drink like seven bottles in a day if she could. And my mind is like, that's $30, boo-boo. I ain't got that money. You can't do it anymore. And so Gwen is always trying to drink kombucha. And so she comes up to me and goes, Dad, can I have that bottle that's in the fridge? I'm like, no, baby girl, that's mom's. You can't have the one in the fridge. And she was like, okay. And five minutes later, I look over at Gwen sitting on the sofa drinking a bottle of kombucha. And I'm like, Gwen! I literally just said no. She goes, oh, I didn't get that one in the fridge. I got the one in the fridge out in the garage. I was like... A, it's the cutest thing ever, but B, did you not understand what I meant? Clearly you didn't. Like, this isn't a a joke. I meant you can't have kombucha. And she's like, no, I'm gonna take that one. Like, no, that's not what I meant. You knew the truth, but she's thinking, but I didn't lie. And see, maybe what we need to do is define what truth is. And as a result also, what a lie is. Because see, here's what truth is. The definition of truth that John Mark Homer kind of explains is the truth is reality. Truth is what is real. It's what is physical. It's what is tangible. It's what is real. It is reality. So by definition, as an antonym to that, as as something that is opposite to that, a lie then would be unreality. Something that does not exist. Truth is reality. And a lie is unreality. This is what exists. This is what doesn't. This is true and lies. And the extraordinary uniqueness of humanity is that we have this capacity to simultaneously hold both reality and unreality in our minds at the exact same time. We can imagine what could be unreality and then make it come to be, which is reality. The example of this is flying. 120 years ago, if you were like, hey, humans are gonna be flying all over the planet 100 years from now, everyone would have been like, you're insane. Like, you literally need to be checked in somewhere. People don't fly. We can't do that. We don't have wings. And then the Wright brothers were like, but I think we can do it. And then they invented the plane and we started to fly. And now everyone does it all the time, everywhere, because now it is no longer an unreality. It's an undisputed reality. We took something that didn't exist and we made it exist. This is what humans can do, but there's a problem with this as well. And here's what Comer, here's how he explains our problem. He says, our capacity to hold unreality in our minds is our genius, but it's also our Achilles heel. Because not only can we imagine unreality, but we can also come to believe in it. We can put our faith in ideas that are untrue or maybe even worse, that are lies. 
See, the easiest place to see this is in politics. Now, I'm not going to get political. I am not going to talk about that on this stage right now, but you all know exactly what I'm talking about. Each side equally cemented in their own beliefs of what is right and wrong. But when subjective opinion is presented and believed as objective truth, we lose our foundation and our baseline of fact and fiction. And fake news becomes a thing. Elections show us this. COVID and misinformation showed us this. Religion can show us this. Social media is the worst at showing us this. Look around. This is the way of our world. We believe lies, and it's a problem. But did you know that it's not new? See, the greatest threat to our society is the attack on this. It's the attack on a shared sense of trust and a baseline of facts. And you know who knew this the most? You know who knew this the best? The Nazis. See, I say that and you're like, oh yeah, bad. Like we, we obviously associate everything of what they did with evil. We know that's wrong. And yet they took control of people's brains through thoughts and lies and they expanded a regime based on this. And in 1951, Hannah Arendt wrote this book called The Origins of Totalitarianism to talk about communism and the rise of the Nazi regime. Look what she says. She says, the ideal subject of totalitarianism rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist. It's not the person who already believes it and is set in their ways, but the people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction or reality and the distinction between true and false or morality no longer exists. This is what the enemy is doing. This is what he conjured up at the beginning. This lies and this deception, this moral relativism. And since Genesis 3, he has been stealing and killing and destroying humanity through a distorted desire that leads to destructive behavior over two things, over power and over control. He is trying to take the reins of those things. And when we are all so easily deceived in these two moments, we really start to see that the enemy has his clutch. But my main question tonight is not who's controlling the information or the misinformation in culture and in the world. That's not what we're going to talk about. I want to know who's controlling it in your life. So I've got two questions for you. Two questions as we end, as we kind of navigate this conversation. Here's the first. Who is the ultimate authority regarding what is true in your life? Who is the ultimate authority regarding what is true for you? I mean, I mean, think about it. Who is it really? Who determines your truth? What information is the best way to live and And what do you do with those deepest desires that you have? See, every one of us had a moment when we questioned if God could really, if we could really believe what God says. Every single one of us have thought of this before. Every single one of us have questioned if we could really believe that God has our best in mind, if he really loved us, or if he really still loves us, even after what we did last night, last month, last week, or last year. Whenever we have those questions, the enemy pounces on them, and he attacks us through those questions, because then he starts to prey on our ideas, these deceptive ideas. And if he can get us to do one thing, if he can get us to doubt God and instead 
trust our own inner intuition and our feelings as to what is best and what is true, then he's got us. It's why he gives us deceptive ideas that play into our distorted desires and that lead into our destructive behaviors. Because what he ultimately is trying to do is to get us to believe that what God actually wants for us isn't what God wants for us. Because right after you see the enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy, you actually read that Jesus has come so that you can have more and better life than you could ever dream of. This is what he wants for you. But he made Eve question that and not believe that that's what God wants. It's what he did to Eve and it's what he is desperately trying to constantly do to you. This is his pathway to getting you to sin. This is how sin entered the world and it's how it enters your life. Not through a barrage of some overwhelmingly physical attack, but a subtle, cunning, deceptive lie whispered into your heart. Ignatius of Loyola, the 16th century theologian, talks about sin in this way. Look at what he says. He says, sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And this is our story. This is all of our story. This is the story from the beginning of Genesis. And this is why that story in Genesis is the truest story ever. You know why? Because Adam, you know what that word actually means? The word Adam actually means human. And you know what the word Eve actually means? It actually means life. This is the story of human life. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of all of us. It's the story of how we are rooted in this struggle of trying to get power and control. And the enemy's trying to take it, and he's what ultimately trying to do is trying to get power and control over your life and over mine. So if this is what's happening, if it's the story of human life, then the next question we gotta wrestle with is not who's the ultimate authority, but for you, you really need to think about this. Who is God? Who is God? What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, so who is God? And when you get down to this question, you need to understand it's the first domino to all other questions in life. And what we're going to do is we're going to address some of these other questions, these biggest ones in the next few weeks, but this one has to be first. It's the most important thing about you. And so really the question is not who is God, but it's really who is your God. This is so important because for so many of us, a desire to be like God gets distorted into us acting like we want to be God. Now, maybe you're not sitting here acting like you're trying to be the God because the people who are saying they want to be the God, you run away from them. Um, They're not, uh, how do you say this, safe people. So that's not you. You're not trying to be the God. We understand that. But, But what happens is that the way we act, it makes us act like and think that we are our own God that we are determining our own truth and that our own right and wrong is driven from our own power and control because we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. But did you know that the enemy, you never see the enemy offer you with the invitation or the temptation to follow him. Did you know that? The serpent didn't go to Eve and say, hey, instead of following God, you should follow me. 
Because everyone's gonna be like, I'm not following Satan. No, of course not. No one would sign up for that. He's not trying to get you to follow him. All he's trying to do is steal and kill and destroy everything that's God doing, that, that God wants to do in your life. You know how he does that? He does that by making you follow your own desires. He's trying to get you to lead out like you are your own God living in your own kingdom. So when we choose to be our own God, we're actually doing what the enemy wants. You're following the enemy's path when you act like your own God. And that more and better life that's available to you by placing God as your ultimate authority in life becomes stolen and killed and destroyed. And it no longer exists. And so you owe it to yourself to ask, who is your ultimate authority in life? What do you trust most when it comes to your happiness? What's the ultimate authority that you run to for your happiness, for your hope, for your peace, your security, for your sexuality, for your identity, for your future? Where do you find that source of truth to answer those questions? Ultimately, you're asking, you need to ask yourself, who is your God? Is it you? Is it someone else? Is it logic? Is it reason? Is it my feelings? Is it your creator? Is it the person who created you? Is it the person who's constantly trying to remind you that what he wants for you is for you to find the more and better life than you could ever dream of, but he wants you to live that life out day by day, moment by moment, and decision by decision. So, who is your God, really? Let me pray for y'all. Now, as I pray, I think there's probably some people in the room who would even walk in saying like, yeah, I believe in God, or I believe and what he says, but I don't know that he's really my God. I don't know that I've really made him my God. I don't know that I've actually submitted my life underneath his authority. I don't really know that I'm living that way. And so over the next few moments, I wanna pray specifically for you. Because there are some of you that are wrestling with trying to navigate that and figure that out, trying to figure out whether or not you want to follow him, whether or not you can trust him. And you just have questions you're just like that woman who ran up and touched his robe. You're just thinking, if only I could find out if this is actually real. So I'm gonna do something before I pray with, if everyone would close their eyes. But if that's you and you're wrestling with that, would you raise your hand? If that's something that you wanna figure out, if this is compelling to you, if you have questions you want answered, would you just raise your hand? Here's what I want you to know if your hand is raised. In this dark room when no one else can see you and I can't even because of the lights, God sees you. He knows it. And he wants to show you that you can trust him. So Father, every one of us in this room, we wanna figure this out. We wanna get it right. We want the more and better life that we could possibly find. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what we believe about you. So I ask in the name of Jesus that you would show yourself to us in a real and tangible and clear way. Would you elevate our trust in you whenever we have doubts? Would you allow us to see that you're not afraid of our questions and they don't keep us from you? If anything, you invite them in. So would we bring our questions to you and would we stop questioning you. So as we draw near to you, would you draw near to us? Would you allow us to learn more about who you are so that we can ultimately trust and obey you to find the life that you want for us? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us first. 
And I pray that every person in this room would be able to say that they love you right back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.